all, welcome everybody to another edition of our Safety View. Today, we're going to be talking about psychological safety. What are everybody's thoughts? Do you feel that people have are on the same page about it? And um, uh, we're going to throw in a mix of different uh, things today because we're going to do polls and a breakout room. So I'm going to hand it over to Rosa to get the discussion started. Thank you, uh, Tamara, and welcome everyone. All right, so we are hoping that we have created a safe space on the safety view for people to disagree if they feel that they have a different perspective. There's no shoulds or, or you know can't says. Uh, the only thing we ask is that people be respectful in their comments. We want to make sure that um, we don't break down the psychological safety. So that's one thing that we would like to ask. So I want to talk a little bit about my background because I, I was a very early proponent of psychological safety. I, I published some articles in 2012, 13, um, talking about it from the perspective of how the brain operates and when you're under threat, how many of your executive functions shut down and how that would impact safety. And that was because I became acquainted with um, David Rock managing with um, managing with the uh, brain in mind. That was a brilliant article, managing with the brain in mind. And I said, oh my gosh, I, I never even thought about all of these things. Basically that we all need uh, to have a sense of, of security, that we have to save face, that we have to feel we belong, that we have to feel that we're being treated fairly and that we have autonomy over our lives. So he really broke it down into very specific actions that made a lot of sense to me. And it was only later that the Google study came forward, which was um, based on Amy Edmondson's work uh, of what creates high performance teams and they basically verified yeah uh, these are the things uh, and the term psychological safety kind of it, not kind of it took off it exploded um, with Amy's definition uh, so one of my um, concerns about it is that Amy's definition is not the only one that is valid about psychological safety. So you guys can put either, you know, thumbs up or into the chat if you like, um, uh, because it would be good to, to know people's reaction to this. Uh, on LinkedIn, there's very opposed camps of, um, oh, psych, uh, in Amy's definition, psychological safety is a group phenomenon uh, with, um, you know, that you, it's not, uh, directly interpersonal like trust is, all right? So uh, when when uh, I've seen uh, safety people talk about it, they, they say that um, psychological safety is not about um, psychological health and safety, mental health, um, suicide-related comments, that that is not the, um, uh, the, the where's, psychological safety applies. So I wanna, I wanna bring that up because and read a definition by another person that, was, that came before Amy uh, 
then his name is William Kahn, which I don't know if everybody uh, has um, heard of him, but William Kahn is a, what well, I think he's still alive, yeah, as a psychologist. And um, his definition was very simply that psychological safety was the ability to be oneself because he studied social interaction. Uh, and he kind he uh, actually worked uh, based on Irvin Goffman, who studied social interaction. <laughs> and what he concluded was that social interaction is extremely risky because every time we interact with someone, we risk the chance of being humiliated. Uh, I don't know about you, but that really struck me to the core, um, especially in view of how often we ask people to speak up. And here it is, we're asking people to do something that goes completely against uh, our biology, our social training, uh, and, and yet we sit here and we wonder why, why isn't it working? Why aren't people mm -hmm. speaking up? Uh, and we, I, I think we have to uh, honor that and change the conversation. And that, that might be helpful to safety professionals because I do think uh, it's a legitimate pushback that why are we going to be dealing in, in psychological areas when we don't have that training? Uh, we already have so much on our, on our plate why are we going to add yet another factor when we haven't even dealt with everything we have to do in the right way? Why don't we focus on, on case management, making people feel secure during case management? Uh, why don't we uh, you know, work on decreasing the, secure, uh, the severity of injuries? Those are really the areas that, that we should be focusing on, not psychological well-being. Uh, and I think it's because we have a very limited understanding or we're using a limited dis, um, understanding of psychological safety mm -hmm. as a team, kind of a team sport, right? But um, I don't know if you identify with this, but I, I grew up as a um, minority uh, in, in a very uh, upper middle class white neighborhood. Uh, and I lived in the on the other side of the railroad tracks. Uh, and I, I grew up feeling excluded all my life. In fact, I knew I was being excluded, but I never thought it was wrong. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you acclimate to your socialization. It never occurred to me that it was wrong. Uh, and uh, so I, I became very sensitized to how to fit in how to talk to people without getting a negative reaction. So all the things that that Irving Goffman talked about, you know, um, in terms of inter, in, in, interaction being a uh, a risky, yeah, it is extremely risky. Uh, and uh, then somebody like William Kahn says, "Oh, you should feel comfortable to be yourself." And I'm like, "What? <laughs> Why would I feel comfortable to be myself?" Um, so I, I don't know, I wasn't keeping track of my time. I'm sure my time is up. Uh, so I, I wanna hand it over to, um, I just wanna encourage you to enter questions into the chat uh, and uh, give us your, you know, just interact, give us uh, your feedback. 
uh, we're going to, as Tamara says, we're going to be doing a poll and we're going to be doing, uh, you know, some guided questions uh, for everyone to interact. Uh, but it, you also have uh, the chat box. So Lauren or Tamara, who wants to go next with, why are you here? Yeah, I'll jump in very quickly. Um, you know, uh, many people on the panel probably already know this about me and some of you may not, but I actually come with uh, from a social work discipline. So my career started as a, as a social worker working in the community with various populations, one of them being the homeless population. And, you know, it, it struck me as very interesting when I saw in the safety community, the, the whole discussion about psychological safety, because this is actually what we learned as social workers way back. And I, I have to forgive me, I actually have to look at my LinkedIn, but it was 1994. Um, when I was in school doing my bachelor's of social work and a woman by the name of Patricia and other um, professors brought us into the world about being conscious about other people in our space and making people feel comfortable to open up and disclose. Now, I understand that the fancy label psychological safety wasn't put on this, but the whole point was to groom us as students to understand that we are responsible every time we're interacting with a client, be it an individual or a group, that we have a role as professionals to create an environment where they feel they can trust us and be open. And so I, I really enjoy that we're coming to a position where we can start openly discussing this because it really feeds into my passion, which is group dynamics and being mindful when we are in our workplaces that as, as professionals, we do have a role to play in nurturing the group dynamics on teams so that people do feel comfortable engaging and discussing with us. Um, and, you know, I wanted to just touch on one of the things that you said is that, you know, about, um, I think it was Bruce, about a study we're doing in some places, organizations were saying, um, you know, they're on the road, they're really good, they're able to do psychological safety and others weren't so sure. And this was before we opened up. So some of you might've missed that part, but it struck me is that one element of this is when members of the group change, so does the dynamic of whether or not people feel comfortable and safe. And I think that's something that I'd love to have a discussion around, maybe not right now, but for a future session. Lauren, I'll give it to you. Okay, so why do I care so much about psychological safety? I care so much about psychological safety that I have a big picture of an elephant standing in the road because um, I feel that like in organizations, it, um, if we don't address the lack of psychological safety, um, we're going to have it continue to block us um, moving forward towards improving our employee experience, being able to make sense of what's going on around us, the learning and ultimately delivering on our purpose in the world. But so I did not grow up with a feeling of exclusion. I felt I did belong um, and that I could speak and even should speak, not just for myself, but for others. So it started with um, animals. I was always like making sure we saved the baby raccoons and then dealing with a pony that wasn't cared for. And then I moved into um, healthcare and as a nurse in the emergency department, I 
really learned um, this continual experience that kept repeating and it went like this. So I'm, I'm a new nurse, I'm in, in the emergency department in Hartford and this man rolls in and he says, well, my dent I wasn't my dentist, but I, I've had a cold for a few days, but he said I had to come here. And as I took off his shirt, I saw these little red dots all over his skin. And I remember I went and got the attending and um, I said, uh, oh, I think this is, these are petechiae, this, these are dots of blood. And she's like, oh no, no, it's subdermal hypoxia. And I felt myself doing this tap dance around the bedside because I'm like, I don't think so. What I believe so strongly or felt like I know is different than what leadership knows. And now I have to challenge and I have to do it because the stakes are really high. So I'm like, what do I do? I, I say, get me the chief resident. Oh, he's in clinic. I don't care. Just get me more help. And um, he did show up and sadly, um, within an hour, this man was gone and it actually was a bleeding disorder and it was a horrible ending. But um, I've been in many other scenarios where um, we couldn't have fixed that no matter what, but where you can see that the different perspectives are so, so, so valuable. So I, I always, so anyone that knows me knows I have this, this animal thing. So this is my other elephant. And this elephant is, represents um, the blind men in the elephant and how important we need psychological safety for sense making, figuring out what is going on um, before we make that decision. And this lack of people feeling free to contribute. This is what I see. This is what I sense. Um, is is uh, if we we will never get tired of liability if we can't have people speaking. And when we have fifty percent of healthcare folks not feeling safe to speak, we have a crisis. So all of my work has been like, how can I how can I create a space where more people feel free to speak? But I will also tell you that we're, the challenger space, if you follow you know, um, Tim Clark, you know, you can be feel safe to belong or learn, or then hopefully we're all safe to contribute. But the challenger, there's a scary space in the challenger where you're like, oh, I want to excuse me, everyone, you know, I think we should abandon speaking up. Um, but I have worked on teams where we, I had true, true trust and psychological safety. And I think in my story, I couldn't continue in my work if I hadn't seen that it could be present. So I just am really committed to saying, look, the presence of absence uh, and fear versus trust and silence versus speaking is creating our reality. So it's really important that we treat this topic with uh, respect it deserves. So that's what I think. Thank you for that, Lauren. Wow. So you all have uh, stories, personal stories around this. And as my colleagues were talking, I was thinking, you know, um, uh, all of the negative reactions to the use of the term of psychological safety or the, um, you know, that, that, that safety, the safety profession uh, is not qualified. I, I think it's all uh, because we have different definitions of it. But when you hear uh, something as simple as, you know, gaining, Tamara said, we have to gain their trust, right? Um, and uh, Lauren is talking about um, the dynamics of, you know, that what everybody goes through when they are trying to decide whether or not they should speak, uh, then it's not psychobabble. I mean, it, it's just very direct, right? If we can't, uh, make people comfortable with talking to us, which is really about building relationships, then 
uh, can we really succeed at, as a manager or, or a safety professional? And I, I think the answer is no. Uh, so before we uh, go further into the conversation, uh, we wanted to get kind of, uh, oh, Martha has her hand up. Okay, Martha, go ahead. <laughs> I want to throw out a little caveat. Um, that I sort of alluded to in chat. And I think Rosa, you started this by recognizing that this is a cognitive, that there's a cognitive aspect of this. And with all, I think all, the human mind is, is, a, is paradoxical. And so we have this one paradoxical problem is that the absence of fear um, or the absence of our recognition of fear does not necessarily mean that we are safe because we have our unconscious processes and our conscious processes. And unfortunately, our unconscious processes can drive us towards thinking that we're feeling safe, like that we're speaking up, but we're actually engaged in groupthink or we're actually engaged in covering. So I think Rosa, your example is fantastic. You know, I'm also a person of color who came from an immigrant background and never felt like I fed in. And it has been a revelation to know how much I have covered in order to fit in and I didn't know I was doing it. So there's that aspect of what we don't know that we're doing out of unconscious defenses that makes us feel like, makes it seem like everybody is feeling safe, but we're not actually in a place where we can actually contradict each other. And I think that's an important aspect of this is that um, we wanna be able to speak up speak in. I mean, I love Lauren, your concept of speaking in, but we actually, we, we have to ha be brave enough to dissent. And, and I think that's the key thing. Um, and we have, that means that we have to battle a lot of our unconscious defensive drives to convince ourselves that we actually that we are not different that we are not um uh con you know that you know that we agree with everybody uh so there's i, I think there's that also that other caveat yeah no excellent point absolutely <sighs> lots of food for thought here in terms of psychological safety and that's one of the reasons why i keep thinking it's not just a group phenomenon because if you as an individual are not cognizant of these dynamics or what's going on in your own mind, uh, I mean, how, how would you even begin to address uh, all of these things? And in our example of not even knowing that we were being ostracized, I didn't know I was being ostracized. <laughs> it was just an acceptable sociometry when I was growing up, right? Uh, and it was always my fault if I didn't get heard or listened to. It's my, my own fault. So uh, I would like to, I don't see any other hands up. I would like to do the poll um, tomorrow that, that just to find out where everybody's at and take the temperature. And then uh, we'll call on Philip right after that. I just saw that you raised your hand, Philip. Okay, um, let's do the poll. Okay, how comfortable are you with your level of understanding of psychological safety? Please uh, choose one. 
not at all. I'm just getting started. Get it, but have questions. I'm doing it and I'm having success. Totally confused. Oh, so far we don't have anybody that's totally confused. That's good. <laughs> um, just getting started. Okay, so obviously the leading indicator here is I get it, but I still have questions. So I'm going to ask you to just reflect for a moment. And what is that question and enter it into the chat. I get it, intuitively I get it, but I still have questions. There's something I don't understand. What would those be? The curious bunch. Hmm. Enter them, please enter them into the chat so that we can see uh, what's in our, how do you build it? Yes, okay, I get it, but how the heck do you build it? Thank you, Diane. Let's be honest practice our psychological safety, the multi-levels of analysis. Oh, I'm curious about that as well. I don't understand how it relates to some national cultures. Excellent point, Phil. Understanding the concept and employing it in a larger organization, which is far more complicated, yeah. Yeah, I'm really good in small groups, at creating psychological safety, but how do I make that grow and start to become part of the culture, right? And, and uh, one of the things uh, that I didn't talk about earlier that I really wanted to point out is that when everybody was caught up in safety culture, it was a fabulous um, way to talk about the invisible part of the organization, but then we just started putting everything under safety culture and not addressing it because we didn't know how the heck to change a culture or how to address it. Um, all right, so Diane, uh, Phil and then Diane, go ahead, Phil. So my question was, I think, um, we've, we've passed the point really at the moment. Because um, what I was gonna say is I'm feeling lacking in psychological safety at this moment. You're lacking in psychological safety. Thank you for at, uh, saying that. At this moment. Uh, yes, is, I understand. Is, I understand. Yeah, there's a, a comment in the chat that I disagree with because I didn't feel safe to speak up and question and challenge it or even to put comments in the chat. So for me, it's very much a personal thing. Yes, it is very personal. Um, and Okay, so uh, I'd like to see, before I call on Diane, I'd like to see with a thumbs up if you agree that you would like people to be honest about their perception, uh, and even if it disagrees with you. Could I see some thumbs up if you agree with that? I see one there, Tamara, me. I don't see a lot of thumbs up, Christine Rowe. All right, Marta, yes. I should see a thumbs up. Well, you know what? Sometimes people aren't listening when you ask the question. Uh, so other people are hesitant to give the thumbs up. Is that, am I reading this correctly? 
Oh, they don't know how to give a thumbs up. So just on your screen, a thumbs up will work too. We, yeah, we're old fashioned school here. What was the question again? Can we, can we speak honestly and openly here? Is everybody yeah. okay with that? Can we disagree openly? Is everyone okay with that? I see one. Oh, Andy. Hi, Andy. Of course you do. <laughs> All right. All right. Now we're starting to see that. All right. So this is a lesson in point, which is that I assumed that people were not agreeing. And then Tamara says, well, they don't know how to agree. <laughs> so one way to avoid uh, the loss of psychological safety is not to make assumptions, which I just did. So I'm admitting it. And uh, that's that. And how about, if I can bounce in here for yes. 30 seconds, Rosa, yes, of course. Uh -huh. the, the other thing that you just saw with Rosa and I, because we have been working for quite a while, is me being open enough to say, oh, Rosa, I, I, I'm not sure people are understanding. Mm -hmm. And that just didn't happen today. That has happened from us working together over the years. And then after in our debrief, kind of sharing back and forth with one another. So it, people are asking about how do we build it? Mm -hmm. And I just, one of the things I want to put out there is not in one hour. <laughs> <laughs> not in one hour. I'm sure Diane, who has her hand up, can say a lot to that one. <laughs> Diane, please unmute. <clears throat> yeah, I'm going to have to learn how to do that, All right? So, um, yeah, so... I, I, so where I'm sitting in this conversation, and I, I think there's a lot of alignment on, you know, let's not talk so much about what it is and what are the definition and the different schools of thought, because, hey, you know, we can see that with safety differently, safety to human performance and everything else. And that's not helping anybody, is it? So where, where I'm sitting on this is, is, is rather than trying to have a lot of definitions and agreeing or disagreeing on the definition. Let's instead talk about what helps to build it because we all know what it is when we see it. You know, there's, you know, you're in a meeting and you think, hang on, something not quite right here. And, um, and then you think, oh my goodness, but you know, it's only me. And, and, then, and then you kind of force yourself to say the point, you just force yourself. And the leader of the meeting is like, oh, well, that's a really good point. Oh, I really like this. And, and, and then there's this, and then somebody else says, well, actually, I was wondering that too. And then you find out afterwards, after the meeting, that, um, in fact, everybody was thinking the same thing, that you were not the outlier and that people did have concerns. But what is the key thing here is that the people in the position of authority are are in a place where they're um, open to listening and they are seeing challenge as a gift. So then the question is, how do we build capability in people to see challenge as a gift? And a lot of that is by using case studies and examples because, and also because we all know that contextized behavior, so you, know, you can do a lot of skills building with people, it may not work. The, what I have seen to be the most powerful lever of enabling 
speak up and psychological safety in an organization, and I see this in many organizations, is when the people at the very top of the organization are asking for challenge, and then when receiving the challenge, they celebrate the challenge. Mm-hmm. Okay, because I, I see people going asking for challenge, and then they invite the challenge, they get the challenge, and they go, oh, I don't like that much. Nah, so that's not what it is. We're talking about, you have to ask for the challenge. Listen to the challenge, welcome, and celebrate the challenge. So, and, and of course, when they start doing it, it's really uncomfortable. And then the, the more they get from it, it becomes a, a self-reinforcing positive, positive circle. So I, I hope that's helpful. Yeah, I have I to got... pop out now, by the way, so I'll, I'll be back in a bit, but ex- oh, excuse okay. me. Oh, okay, all right, because so, I do... Uh, I, just, Rosa, I... I was gonna just actually um, pop into here because I, I think that what would be very useful to consider is, is uh, Bruce Tuckman's. And he talks about the the different stages of group development, right? And so one of the pieces that I'm hearing come here is the the, uh, forming and storming stages. And what isn't taught in business school apparently, or management school, which I find really interesting is is how to manage your groups and to identify as leaders, the different stages that groups go through. And so if people have an interest in talking about that further, then we can look at opening up a session to dive into that. I I don't want to uh, sideline the conversation, but there are core uh, phases in group development. There is a forming, storming, norming, performing, et cetera. And Mm -hmm. how you as the formal leader take your group through that will then um, be how people will engage as well as there's something called the informal leader. And so if you as the formal leader do not take that position of nurturing the group to how it should be engaging, then the informal leader will determine those rules for you. So there is some cognitive thinking in the management level that needs to go on, which isn't trained. No, no, I never heard it mentioned when I was working with the executive MBA uh, students. And as a social worker, we we had to go through learning about that for five years continuously. So it was really drilled in our heads how to manipulate that. How to manipulate. (laughs) Well, you do, right? Because when you're counseling a group of people on, on, on certain things, you need to be the one who's guiding. Yes. Thank you. Um, let's see, we have uh, Janet and, uh, and, then, and Michael. Okay, Janet, go ahead. I raised my hand by accident. I was doing my thumbs up via my hand. Oh, and you so did it the, in your hand, okay. Yeah, but just, just while I'm on, now that I have yeah. the, yeah, yeah, the floor. Yeah, um, yes. what did you want to Samara, say? <laughs> I, I also have a social work background. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so now working with safety and actually learning and development. But um, yeah, that whole idea of, um, and I guess my um, influence or guide, I really liked it when you, when you use the word guide, um, uh, the process, right? How do we use ourselves too to help set that tone of, of safety? Mm-hmm. And that it's ongoing, like trust, I think you can 
build it, it can erode and then you need to rebuild it. I, I think even that forming, norming, performing, you know, is not li a linear process, um, at least not from my, my experience. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. And thank Michael. you for adding that, Janet, because that, that's very important mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that it's not linear. Uh, Michael, and then Lauren uh, is, uh, has a question too. Yeah, I, I guess I just took a little umbrage with the word manipulate. And I think yes. that um, <laughs> some of that has to do with, well, first of all, the notion that an organization is um, we have um, uh, humanized it in some, some ways and given this mechanism, this construct of our imagination, this abstract notion, the same kind of qualities as a human. Um, we give it legal status similar to uh, an organization, give it legal status similar to we would a citizen in the, in the world, and it's not. And it doesn't respond. It's a machine. It doesn't respond in the same way as humans do. So the notion of <clears throat> this psychosis of an organization and looking at it and treating it as we would a human, I think sometimes that gets us off the rails. Um, and if we see it for what it is, a human construct, an abstract notion, something that we've created that gives us very, very predictable results, which at times ends up killing people, then the, the notion, the way we, we um, diagnose ourselves as human beings and individuals, that's not gonna work for an organization. And yet we don't do that. We still see the same structure, storming, norming, performing, all that stuff has been around forever, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because the notion of the organization where things come from the top down and we have to convince people that they have to change and we're gonna put teams of people together and we're gonna work them through that. I mean, that's even counter to the laws of nature. Um, inertia tells us, or uh, the second law of thermodynamics around um, entropy tells us it's gonna change anyway. Lauren, you walk into your, into your ward on a Monday, you come back on Tuesday, it's a different place. Yeah. And you don't manage that, that's an emergent notion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we do not have staff. We don't have um, the requisite number of people. We don't have decision-making authority at that level to be able to examine the nature of those changes and to be able to affect change. Mm -hmm. So we put together teams, we take them outside of what they're doing. We get them norming, storming and whatever, and they come back in and the world has changed, but they haven't. Mm. Well, that's a, that's excellent. You're you're bringing in the whole the whole complexity and that change is not linear. Thank you for that, Lauren. I uh, uh, you had a, a question that you wanted to bring up to the group. And, oh yeah. Uh, so and we were touching a little bit on it before, but also it it, it sort of relates to what Michael was saying, and I agree totally. Um, the whole you think about the psychological safety. Andy and I talk about this a whole lot. Speaking up is based on that top down, like, guess what, guys, we planned all your work and when you're going to do it, it's all written up. So, gee, if anything doesn't go as expected, then, you know, uh, speak up. Let us know that, our, gee, our plans were bad or you failed or, by the way, the guy next door made a mistake. And that is a going against human nature um, to report a failure or to criticize your boss. So that's the problem. But if we could embrace, okay, we're constantly learning, everything around us is changing. Speak up is a, is a punctuated thing versus, that's why I said it has to be a continual process. And what characteristics, so the question is, um, 
if we agree that psychological safety and its presence or absence is affecting everyone's thinking or act, um, acting in the moment every day, how are we as a group of safety leaders going to create um, an environment where we can really nurture a productive conversation, which is what we're trying to do here today. So the, the big question is, is there enough safety to talk about psychological safety? And I love that Philip <laughs> was brave enough to say no. <laughs> um, and so what attitudes do we think about how awry things can go on LinkedIn? And so how do you balance that? We want to differ in our, our opinions. Um, we need the diversity, but we also want to keep people feeling safe. So I would like everyone to type in the chat or also um, you can raise your hand, you know, what attitudes, that's what we can do today. Say, what attitude am I gonna bring to the conversation um, around psychological safety so that it doesn't become meaningless so that it becomes valuable in organizations. So could we do that? What attitude? Um, yeah, what Lauren, attitudes? What are, what's an example? What's open-mindedness. I've gotta be open-minded. Okay. I gotta be patient. Mm -hmm. I've got to be um, respectful that, you know what, I haven't lived the life that Tamara has. Um, maybe, maybe these social workers know a whole bunch more than the engineers. And now, and this is just as valid. Um, mm -hmm. Because these are things we can be. So what I like about the being part or the attitude is like Mike was saying, if everything's constantly changing, I can't tell you, you have to do this, but I can tell you if you show up with this attitude, it's going to be helpful. Uh, it seems to me it's it's almost mandatory. Yes. Uh, Martha had her hand up first and then Joe, go ahead. Oops, Martha, unmute yourself. I, yes. I, oh, sorry um, about it's that. It's a couple, I mean, there was a discussion oh. earlier about culture and I just wanna add sort of an anecdote. And I think it's, as leaders, we have to be very explicit about these things and not have um, assumptions about what it means to be respectful and what it looks like to be curious and what it looks like to be. I agree with all of those things. Yeah. But so I did a project with Intel a few years ago and Intel has um, factories all around the world and I spent some time in Israel. Israel has a very different culture than American culture when it comes to being comfortable with conflict. They're, you know, they uh, you can sort of see that as a highly creative environment where people are really just talking over each other and yelling and slamming their fists on the table. And an American would just be terrified and cowering in the corner. Um, as I was many times. And so, uh, but I had to kind of steel myself and sort of recognize I was in a different environment and I was spending conscious time learning about what the rules are in this environment so that I could fully engage in the way that they engaged in what was a psychologically safe environment for them. They were being able to speak their minds and they were engaged in a full on innovative process. So I agree with what Lauren is saying. I think part of it really, uh, I mean, may, and this speaks to Tanya's point, we have to really understand what kinds of norms are we going to craft and everybody needs to be involved in the crafting of those norms and mm -hmm. be mm -hmm. able to say, 
well, this, I, you know, I might seem abrasive, but I come from the Bronx and oh, I might not be, I might seem like I'm, you know, being passive aggressive, but I'm from Atlanta, right? <laughs> and, and, and we have to be able to, to kind of talk about that and come to a point. Of course, that also requires a certain level of psychological safety too. Um, but it, I think it's just an active process that a leader has to be involved in all the time. Absolutely. And we have uh, two people here that are very involved in that, Andy Barker and Philip Harris. But Joe, you had your hand up. So please go ahead and, and say what you want to say. And then I would like uh, Philip and, um, and Andy to speak to that. Okay, well, thank you very much. Um, I wanted to share a personal story of me long ago before I, I had ever heard the term psychological safety. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a reactor engineer in an operating nuclear plant. And part of the roles and responsibilities of reactor engineers to ensure that the plant is operating in accordance with its design basis. And there were times when I had found problems in this operating plant's procedures. And, um, I was a lot younger then. And when I brought the problems to the shift supervisor, you know, and the unit superintendent, the plant manager at the time said, Joe, Joe, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. And at the time I was uh, very, uh, very, I tried to be very calm, logical, technically sound before I did something that might result in the plant being re reducing power or even shutting down. So I didn't realize at the time that my example gave courage to other people who were less willing to stand up and speak. And when I gave a lecture at my chemical engineering class, one of the students who was several decades younger than I was came up to me and said, you know, you've taught me more about engineering ethics in this one lecture than I've heard from my class of hypothetical examples. So, um, you know, there are times when we're not aware when we're, ex we're role models for people who are uh, more cautious about doing it. And it wasn't until after I left that organization that people came up to me later on and thanked me. So. That's, that's amazing. Wonderful. A lot of times we, we're doing good, but we don't know it, right? You find out later. Yeah, thank you. So um, Marta Acosta came up with a very excellent point, which is, you know, what does respect or even the term psychological safety, how does that work in the Middle East, um, etc. So we have Andy, who's actually been working in Saudi Arabia, and Philip, you've been in Dubai, right? Yeah. Hi. Who, who do you want to go first? No, go, Andy. <laughs> Yeah, I've, um, I've been in the Middle East for about four years uh, now, and it was absolutely imperative that we got people talking, uh, because if people don't talk, you don't know what it is that needs to get fixed. Um, but I wanted to, I guess, first of all, talk uh, a little bit about what Martha said earlier on about being perceived or otherwise as part of the problem. And I think certainly when you know I started in, uh, in safety in the early 90s, what I was taught was go out and find the problem. Um, and, and for a while it worked, but the perception of what it is that I did for a living was, if you give that guy information, 
is going to make you look bad. Maybe not, uh, or maybe not overtly, if you like, but somewhere in the back of your mind, I believe that every individual wants to look good in organization, look like a solution that we just heard, not look like a problem. And if we go around looking for problems, then we're actually saying that people are a problem. So what what I did is in my mind in 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 Saudi Arabia, and you know the safety record in the organisation I joined was pretty terrible. Um, what I did is uh, get the safety guys, for example, to go out and if they found a damaged tool, get it fixed for that person, and then tell it was that person that spoke up and said, "Look, I spoke up, got my tool fixed." And then I got something, then we told the story. And then two people would speak up and say, look, I've got a damaged tool. And then we would say, thanks for speaking up and tell three stories. And then we got 10 and then we got 50. Um, and after four years, we stopped hurting people. Um, and I think it's because what we did was, you know, there's lots of experiments about if, if somebody says something that's not true and somebody else says something not true and somebody else says not something not true, the next person, whether they know it's true or not, will say it the same thing, right? Because we, we've got, we need psychological safety and we'll tell a lie to fit in with the organization, right? To not stand out or whatever. But what I did was start talking about the solutions and the value that people bring um, and celebrated that, which is something we heard earlier on. And, and I found that if you talk about solutions and put people in a good light, uh, they'll tell you more about the problems that they, they actually have. I don't know if I communicated that as well, well as I, I would normally do, but we get there. About one of the most important aspects of psychological safety, which is saving face, building up people's status, which I assume is very important in, uh, in Saudi Arabian culture. So to the extent that you're helping them build up their, their status, they become more effective. Is that? I think that's it. Maslow, you got people want to look good in our organization. You want to look like a solution, not a problem. So uh, turning turning the services that you do uh, as safety into making people look like a solution and look good about doing the solving the problem sort of thing that we that we have, you get more problems solved, and yeah. and you make people look good for solving them. So yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic, uh, Philip. What, what would you add um, in your experience what's been true? Yeah, so um, for me, I've, I've been here in the United Arab Emirates for, for nearly four years now, working on a nuclear construction project, um, 60 different national cultures. My role was as a, a, a safety culture specialist was uh, education. Education, it, was, it seemed to be more education for me than anyone else, I think. Um, so it was always a challenge getting people to, particularly from the, the Koreans, who were one of the major contract partners in the organization, um, getting them to speak openly. But what, I, what we did find is that even though an individual may come from a culture where there's high power distance, um, there's a reluctance to share information, particularly negative information. Uh, given the environment, the right environment, they would share everything. They would tell you all their dirty washing. And, and so I also do, do a lot of work with leadership, first line leaders primarily. And 
What I found is that many of them didn't realize how easily they could impact an individual's perception of whether or not they should, it was safe for them to speak up or not, whether to, to raise a question, to challenge the status quo. And you know, just, just simple things. Uh, I remember one particular workshop, um, a leader was questioning, and I said, well, if someone comes to you with a procedure that is, they believe is not working, and it needs replacing, what do you do? What do you say? Well, I say, well done, thank you. So what if he comes again two days later? And says, I've got another procedure. Well, I'd say, well done. Then he comes the following day. And you say, what again? What's going to happen the fourth time? He's not going to come because of, of something so, so insignificant to you, but really significant to him or to the individual. So you know, the, the point I'm getting to is that, that the leadership don't often realise that it's, it's they that can create that environment. And I've, I've been a party to it in, in the team that I was working in. Um, Emirati leadership, um, mainly, uh, well, let's say 50-50 now in terms of, of Emirati and expat team members. Um, and, and I challenged, challenged the leader that, you know, the psychological safety within the group was, was not where it should be. And we had quite a few discussions about what he could do. And, and I just said, you, know, you need to just ask the questions. You ask the right questions, you'll get the right answers. And not long before I left, um, we had a, a really good, a really good session where the whole of the team, I say the whole of the team, not everyone, there are some who would still feel that they didn't wish to participate. And I think that's from their own personal perspective. Uh, but from a psychological safety perspective, the majority of the, of the team did. And what was said was, was, you know, it was the sort of stuff that people were relu very reluctant to talk about, you know, the circumstances. So I think it is possible, but I think it, it is the leadership that needs to be educated. They need to understand that, that they have such an important part to play. Thank you. And uh, you have lived it for four years, right? Were you there for four years? Three and a half years, yeah. Ah, okay, excellent. Thank you. Um, well, that, uh, in the chat, Gary Wong has brought, Wong has brought up a, a, a very controversial subject, which is, is it management's responsibility to listen and fix problems? Is that a false assumption? So Diane, let's have you go first and then maybe Gary, I hope, uh, let's uh, talk about Gary's question. Go ahead. Um, oh yeah, I was just gonna build on on the, what Andy and, and Philip were yes. going to talk about. I spent from 2006 to 2010 working on rotation in Egypt and Algeria. And the two things that I sort of work is pretty much what Andy said about the, the most senior leaders welcoming or, or getting people to speak up kind of maybe to the HSE people and then those people being recognized for it. And then what Philip was, was talking about is that maybe some of the leaders don't even themselves realize what they're doing. And I remember I was working in a, 
um, in the middle of nowhere um, in Algeria. And, and the senior leaders were so great and they understood safety so much, but they kept on wondering why people weren't telling them about the problems. And so I've just kind of followed them around for a few days. I was, um, well, in fact, a few weeks, so it was two weeks. And what I kind of noticed was that they were all eating in different places as well. So I, so I said, hey, let's go and eat it with everybody else. I'm like, oh, anyway, uh, that made a huge difference. So, so thinking about ways where we can break down the different things that cause more hierarchies, even in a high power distance place. And I, so I went, kept on going back every few weeks for about two years. And I would always go off to lunch and see if the site management were eating with the contractors and they still were and looking very pleased. So it's just to build on what, uh, what Andy and what Philip were saying. Wow. And that speaks into the being mindful of how you're positioning yourself within that that work group. So, so let me let me just mention some things about the. If you want controversy, let's introduce some well, controversy. In one in one moment, but I, I do want to say uh, acknowledge. Actually, I mean, Diane, you you talk about these things like they're so easy, but that's that's like a huge mind shift. <laughs> for them to be eating with the employees. Uh, and uh, so congratulations on that. <laughs> I want to, I just oh, want to. I think, I think we have to remember that our leadership and as Andy and Philip has said, they really, really do want to know. They want to. And they really, they really do want to help the, the, the workforce. So it, it's not that they're kind of these uncaring remote people. It's just that they're, we people like us we can hold their hands to to show them a slightly different way that's all and and, and it is gradual by the way rosa i, I get what you're saying it's yes. yeah it's, it's a gradual thing yeah it's a, not doesn't happen overnight okay i get that yes thank you for pointing that out and, <laughs> thank it, you. and it's oh. also interesting how you know in the same group the same organization you can have individuals from two different areas in that group responds differently. Like I'm thinking about in the retail where when the, when the health and safety um, corporate manager would come down with a checklist, go through the departments, just checking things off. As you were saying, Diane, being very disattached to the employees and moving through their env environment, not engaging with them compared to the food safety um, corporate manager who would come in, he would actually go into the department, have an activity where he would bring the group around and open up what questions do people have? Hey, look at this, this new thing I have to show you guys. What are your thoughts? And, and it was the same group, the same group of workers, but two different people coming in and leading them. And it was just incredible to see the difference in the two. Great example, Tamara, great. Okay, Gary, take it away. Well, <clears throat> well, let me go back a couple of shows ago when we talked a bit about psychological safety. And we always think about the front line being psychologically safe and trying to speak up. But then we elevate it kind of saying, well, gosh, if I'm a manager, is it psychologically safe to even hear what those employees are saying down below? Because now <laughs> I can't have plausible deniability. 
I'm Look. accountable. Like, oh my God, somebody said this is going to happen if I don't know something. So you kind of get this kind of reaction sort of thing and you're kind of doing a squeaky wheel. And I feel for managers having been one, you spend all your time being overwhelmed, you're on your resource. How do I get out of this shift? So the concept that we've been playing with is, is one that was introduced by team of teams. Managers have to switch from being command and control into more communicating and coordinating. That includes all the elements of empowering people. And what we like to do is empower these operational learning teams. So your job management is to kind of like listen, hear, but not fix. It's for you to say, okay, I am going to assemble a learning team. You guys go out there and do that. And by the way, we've got 32 learning teams that are going on at the same time. Bring back the information. We'll share that <clears throat> in stand-up meetings so everybody knows. But our job is to, is to manage resources. We'll have to prioritize and pick which ones that we need to go forward and work on. So management doesn't lose their job and their role. It just shifts in allocated resources. But that way you can engage people in so many different ways. And really, I don't even want to talk about psychological safety because in some cases that obliquely happens. Just like we don't pursue happiness, <clears throat> we do all the good things. And guess what? We get happiness. Happy, happy. Well, also, I do see that Michael has had his hand up for a little bit. So well, I assume you forgot to uh, lower it, Michael. No, no, no. I would. I guess, uh, like sometimes, I'm when I'm listening today, I feel there's anytime I talk about systems thinking, it creates dissonance with people who have mm -hmm. seen, like for you, many of you folks who come at this from a psychological safety perspective. When I talk about things, I, I do believe it probably creates some dissonance. Um, the problem with safety is that when I talk about an inability to respond, there isn't. We, we manage human resources as a cost. We have the minimum number of people, and the, these are embedded in workforce planning algorithms. We have the minimum number of people to do a forecasted number of jobs. Mm -hmm. One of those jobs is not to analyze stuff, to examine stuff, to identify problems with stuff, to problem solve stuff. We do not, that is not in the domain of the frontline workers. They don't feel safe because they have no agency. If I pull an Andon cord in Toyota, somebody will respond right away. And every plant, that happens 3000 times a month. Somebody will see a safety problem, a, 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 a quality issue. And when they pull something, they get a response immediately from management. If you do the same thing in any other organization, what you get is crickets. And that's where the psychological safety ceases to exist is because there's no human interaction in a meaningful way about problems at the, the face of the, the mind where, where, where things are going wrong. If they speak up, there's no one there to answer. Mm -hmm. And, and my, my question is, Michael, what happened before there were crickets? What was the response that people got when they did stick their head out to do something? Because I, in, in environments well, that I've been in, I've seen people take the risk of speaking mm -hmm. up and yeah. then be shut down very quickly by their peers as well as management. And so that really had to be broken open that yeah. if somebody speaks up, we don't come and say, it's not important, just get back to work. 
Well, the response was, if you were building pyramids in, in Egypt, you were killed. If you were a, a frontline worker, if you were a frontline soldier in the Prussian army, your, um, your supervisor shot you in the back if you didn't do what you were told to do. And, the, and if the Catholic church, if you were a parish priest and decided to go off topic, then you were excommunicated and probably tortured and, and killed. Those are the models for our modern organization. So not good, good stuff, bad stuff happens, but that's by design. And that's because this construct we have that thinking takes place at the top, doing takes place at the bottom is, is, is a constant in 99% of the organizations that all of us are dealing with. When there's a departure from that, where you now start to see agency and team of teams, Gary, like Gary talked about is a response to you know, the American army looking at how that was demonstrated at Toyota, right? That's where they were inspired. Um, it's giving agency to the front line and mechanisms for them to talk about, hey, there's a safety issue and immediately get a response. So they've created system structures, they've given resources and money and funding to those people. So you have, just in a nutshell, you have four times more direct labor embedded in a vehicle from Toyota than you do from General Motors, Chrysler's, Mercedes. You have twice as much direct labor than you do from um, Porsche and they make more money than all of them. Mm -hmm. Can I I jump in? Sure, I'm done. (laughs) I just want to acknowledge that our time is up, but if you want to stick around, we're happy to uh, stay here a little bit more, but if you have to go, uh, we understand, okay? Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Uh, Tamara, did you want to tell everybody anything before they go? Uh, Thank you very much, everybody, for coming, those of you who have to depart. We'll take a few moments more. Yeah, and uh, this is being recorded and will be posted. I had my hand up, but you know what? Because I was going to say what, I'm like, why isn't Andy saying this? And I think you don't. (laughs) (laughs) So you want <laughs> so I, you know, I'm I'm the eternal optimist, um, and I and I believe that um, I think change is possible. Um, like like I said earlier on, and I, I'll talk about my more recent uh, time here. In the last four years, I've spent in Saudi Arabia. Um, I've seen a huge shift in culture, and and what I did here was line the organization up to do its job which is to provide what people need to be successful in their job and i had what you had before i heard somebody saying i think it was gary said don't ask the employees what they want because they'll ask for you know a better house a bigger car a private jet or you know they were just terrified of asking the question and losing power and control but we but we did it and what we found out that when you you release people and you empowered them to solve their own problems or ask for help all they did was ask for help to do their job when that was down at the front line we found out that you know when we asked people if they had everything that they needed uh, we heard things like i just need a forklift truck to lift that i need a new hammer my spade's broken the drill needs a needs a new cord things they couldn't deal with, they were allowed to escalate, but they only escalated things that you actually needed to do your job. So I don't have proper ventilation in here to do this painting task. And it was the engineer's job to get that 
for you. And we story told, story told, story told of the positive things that if you ask them, things will come, right? You will, you will get help. It was not easy. It was not easy. But what it was, was fear because the requests that came from people at the front line was, I haven't got something that I need to do the job. And everybody knew that we're here to do that job. Okay. So as I say, we, we had a few dissenting voices that were negative with some dissenting voices that actually created the positives that we celebrated and the more dissenting voices that were positive that we we story told about the more that we got um and i think i was on the call about a month or two ago when uh, the royal commission a, a government organization uh, is now adopting our model for how to manage contractors because they started telling us and we said no it's not like that Johns Hopkins Aramco Hospitals have just awarded us Contractor of the Year. And in Saudi Arabia, where the cheapest wins, clients are finding an excuse to award us a contract when we're not the cheapest because they like what it is that we do. Because when somebody says, the client, do it this way, we say, actually, that's not going to work for us. We're brave enough to push back because, like Gary said, we change the role of manager. It's not manages me, it's managers to help me. And we change the role of leadership because leadership is their cover for candor. If you're brave enough to speak up, I've got your back. Um, and people just speak up about things they need to do their job. Um, so I, I think culture change is possible. And if, if I can do it here in Saudi Arabia with the 60 mixes of whatever, with no training budget, with no procedures, with no infrastructure, I, I think it's possible to do it anywhere. Thank you, Andy. I'm going to get off the soapbox yeah. now. I know. What time is it there now? I know you're, you're, you came to see us in the middle of the night. So thank you. We appreciate it. So any closing words? Oh, Gordon. You're muted. Yeah. I'm just, just listening to Andy, what Andy's describing there. It really resonates with me. It's, um, it's kind of like a sports team analogy. You, your coach, your coach is there to assist you to understand the game. And, and when you're in the, in the heat of battle, whatever sport that is, whatever game that is, it's very difficult to see what all the other, your teammates are doing and what's happening on the other side. But that's what the coach is watching for. And it's, so it's their job to serve you to perform at your highest level. That's, that's really what it's about. And it's, and if you, if you recruit the right type of personalities into leadership, they don't have a problem with serving others. They don't have a problem with, with uh, being the person that, that carries the water, so to speak, or you know, brings the people the tools they need. It's not about them propelling themselves to the top of the heap to make themselves you know, feel like they've, they've reached the successful point in their life. It's about, it's about the, that progression towards you know, uh, really good behavior so that everybody, regardless of what your job is, you go home at the end of the day and you go, you know what, I feel good today. I did something useful, whatever that is, whatever that usefulness is, it, I, I feel like I've accomplished something. Mm. And, and I think that's what, and Martha mentioned something early on in this conversation that really struck me is how we, and, and Rosa, you did as well, talking about how you, you shift your conversation and you, you adjust based on what you see in the room on how people are responding to what, how the, the conversation is going left or right. 
And if it's going a little too much to the left and you start to see the frowns from your leadership, you start modifying your language without even realizing doing it. And, and I've done it a hundred times and you're, and you're, you're trying to find some balance so you can get your point across without, you know, um, infringing too much on, you know, uh, fickle uh, egos, right? It's, it's, you don't want to be seen as that person that is too forceful in the room. I have that problem. I come from a big family. I don't, don't have a problem with speaking up. You have to, if you want that extra potato, you speak up. Matter of fact, <laughs> you grab it, right? So it's, it's, that's, and, and this is the kind of thing that sometimes you, you know, you really have to temper your, it's about leadership. It's about getting the right people in the right positions. Thank you for that. Um, you know, one of the things I, I was talking about William Kahn's definition of, of psychological safety, and we, we, we complicate it. But when he talks about it, it's just so easy to understand. It, it's, a, it's a relationship where you experience trust, security, predictability, the expectations are clear, you know what to expect, even, even if it's a disciplinary consequence, right? It's very clear and people are able to accept that. So I hope that uh, some of these, that we were able to um, move the conversation a little bit further on psychological safety and clear up uh, some of those questions that people had in the beginning. Is there anyone that still has a burning question that? And, and one of the things we didn't get to touch on today was also the notion about like looking at other disciplines and and mm -hmm. reading on you know uh, psychological safety isn't actually from the safety professional field it actually came to us from others and there's a lot of times where I'll see something being written about mm -hmm. but it's actually when you do some research it's been brought forward, like some of the stuff from 1940s even, you know, it's not new. There's a, a wealth of information and research done. And, and that's another thing that um, I was reading on a LinkedIn post is looking for empir um, empirical data research, like people who've done actual research studies and looking at what, what did they find when they were actually looking at um, researching how this was done in settings, as opposed to a blog or something that somebody has just posted on a topic. So again, going back to actual research and digging into what have those people found in some of their studies, because there's a lot of great work that people have put a lot of time and effort in and um, always going to a blog isn't getting us the, the robust information that we need in order to really understand something. Lauren, did you want to say any? Um, I just wanted to, we had thought about this one last question was, um, and I'm going to tell you Andy's answer because it when I first met him it struck me so powerfully is that you know if you have one shot to build trust what is what is the most powerful thing you can do and that's to help someone someone who helped me and I just think you know if you've fallen on the sidewalk and it's all strangers the person that comes and helps you up is 
the person where you're going to start to place that trust. So that's one thing. And so what my big aha of the week though, is that we are living in on when we don't have psychological safety, we're living in uncertainty. Even this morning, I'm like, Oh, what if I really mess this up? Right. Even though this is our tribe. Right. But it, an un, a person who is uncertain in these core needs, core need to belong, core need to be learning. I, I need to contribute. I want to be working with a purpose. When we leave these people feeling uncertain, they cannot meet the needs of an uncertain um, organization. You can't have uncertain people trying to manage uncertainty. We got to get the people. The world's uncertain enough. Can we build people that feel I, it's going to be okay? This person's got my back because the work is tricky enough. So I'm, I'm going to say, let's stay optimistic and <laughs> treat this um, topic with the love it deserves. Oh, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for coming and uh, look forward. I think next session, uh, we're going to be talking about the scarf model, David Rock, very specific, uh, a brilliant uh, model on how to manage with the brain and mind. And I'm thinking of changing it to how to manage with psychological safety and mind. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, bring, in, bring in the systems view, Michael. Thank you for always doing that for us. Thanks very Thank much. I just want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Safepedia, who helped us put this on. I also shared that they are doing some workshops this month, so I put it in the chat for Thank people. You, Lauren, anything from you before we go? Um, no, just uh, we'll be launching our, our speaking in page soon, as soon as I get over my fear. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, watch this you. space. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> all right thank you everyone wow we had such a great uh group thanks group